Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. And what a joy it is to worship together. As we prepare to read God's Word, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we do that this morning, realize that um, this is just as much worship as what we just got through doing, musical worship. What we did as we read the Word of God, which we did when we prayed. When you come through those times of introspection, you come to the point of the Word of God where then you're ready to hear it and to submit to it, and that is a form of worship to the Lord's submitting to His sovereignty and authority in all things the church and in your life. And so that's our desire to do that now. If you're new with us this morning, we've set this time aside for reading and studying the Word of God, and we are in a continued study, verse by verse, through the pastoral epistles. We're beginning a new section today, and it's under the same guidelines, the, the subtitle of Guidelines for Public Worship. And this new section we've entitled Leadership. We're going to pick up in verse 1, if you would, of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to read together all the way through verse 15. This is our habit to begin the Holy Spirit's work through the Word to conform us and help us understand it. We're going to start just like this. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work that he desires to do. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Verse 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred by the devil. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Verse 9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 10, these men also must first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one, only one wife, good managers of their children and their own households. Verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So we stop at that point and we realize that everything that he said all the way up to that point and everything that he said back in chapter 2 was that we would know how to what? conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the pillar and support of the truth. So everything that he said is his rules for the church, and that's how we can interpret that. When George Allen moved to Washington, D.C., as head coach of the Redskins, he promised the nation's capital the moon. He told them it would be just a few seasons before he would develop the Redskins into a championship football team. He promised them the Super Bowl by the end of the second season. Team had a brilliant preseason that first year. Then early in the regular season, they won several amazing victories. It appeared the Redskins were to be lifted from their common role of loser to the uncommon role of winner. 
As time passed, however, the inevitable occurred. They began to lose. And the blame fell, at least in part, not only on Coach Allen, but on a quarterback by the name of Sonny Jurgensen. One day after another defeat, Sonny was getting ready to take a shower and go home. A sports writer leaned over to him in the locker room and said, Say, Sonny, be honest now. Don't all these off-the-wall remarks we write and all this public flack disturb you? Doesn't it make you want to quit when people throw things at you from the stands and when you get those nasty letters? Sonny just leaned back and gave a big toothless grin and sighed, quote, No, not really. I don't want to quit. I've been in this game long enough to know that every quarterback every week of the season spends his time either in the penthouse or the outhouse, end quote. And Sonny's comments point out an important fact. It's true uh, that if you are a leader, you spend your time either at the top or the bottom. You seldom know what it's like to be in between. You're either the hero or the villain. You're either respected or you're the virtual bad guy. People in leadership must live in a yo-yo of public opinion under the critical jabs of uh, the criticizers as well as being congratulated. And of course, being in the outhouse is a lot more difficult in those choice times when you're in the penthouse. There were plenty of people in those days, of course, that knew what advice to give Sonny. There were plenty of people in those days who knew what advice to give Coach Allen. They knew exactly how to coach the football team. Uh, the world, of course, has many articles and books beyond number about leadership. There's plenty to say about what leaders need to do to be successful. Sports writers spend tons of time creating scenarios by which those who are on the field can do it better. And a lot of that has spilled over into the church. But if we understand anything about all the men Jesus chose to follow him and establish the church, and we certainly know a good bit about the Apostle Paul, we will know just by those observations that we can't talk about church leadership from the viewpoint of human potential or ability. We can't make a case for someone to lead the church just by analyzing the natural skills they may manifest. And not only that, but the Lord has seen to it that we are not to do that, which is precisely the reason why He's given us these passages. They've given us spiritual qualifications in order to make those kinds of decisions. So this is a chapter that's set aside to give the required qualifications for church leadership. And ladies, I know that um, as we went through chapter 2, you probably thought that we were picking on you a good bit with a few four or five requirements for those who conduct themselves in the church, but you can see there's a whole lot more than four or five here. There's people who serve in the church and leading the church and ministering in the church are to be qualified to do so. And those qualifications are given here very clearly. It's interesting to note that these qualifications are so important that the Apostle Paul repeats them in Titus chapter 1. And knowing what we know about the church in Ephesus, this instruction for leaders is not arbitrary. There are obviously leaders in the church who do not meet these qualifications. And knowing how important it is to have qualified leaders for the health of the church, Paul understood that people probably needed a flesh and blood model. So Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And to the Philippian church, he said, in Philippians 4, 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
So from what we've already studied then about Paul, there must be a number of things that are going to be part of that whole process of leadership apart from the requirements. There's going to be a willingness to accept loneliness. There's going to be a willingness to accept and deal with failure, a willingness to sacrifice, to be weary. In fact, we saw at length in 2 Corinthians 11, 26-30, he said, I've been on frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, all of that. We saw all the difficulty you went through, and not just the difficulty that was in uh, the actual uh, travel, but those from his countrymen, from false believers. And then on top of that, he said, the pressure of the daily concern for the churches pressured on him. Who's weak without my being weak? Every time somebody had a difficult time walking their faith, Paul felt it. Who is led into sin with my intense, without my intense concern? Everyone that tend to go down the way of a sinful path grieved Paul. If I have to boast, I'll boast in what pertains to my own weakness. I, I'm not some power, powerhouse. This is a difficult journey, and I've had a difficult time of it. So a willingness to be lonely, to deal with failure, to sacrifice, to be weary, to be criticized. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, they say his letters are weighty and strong. His personal presence is unimpressive. His speech contemptible. There's hardly anything worse than when you have a day in, in ministry and leadership and you overhear a criticism like that. You have to re you realize where it's coming from. You understand uh, the difficult time they're having, uh, but it makes it no easier for you to know what people actually think to be rejected, to be pressured, to be disappointed. That's part of the pulpit ministry. That's part of leadership in the church. When all these kinds of things come with church leadership, and there has to be a recognition in a very real sense that we've set aside personal ambition. We've talked about that before. What you thought would happen, what you think was going to happen because of your leadership and all the stuff you brought to the table. You got to get rid of all of that. Personal comparison. All those kinds of things lead to pride and they lead to jealousy. Paul had to deal with that in the church. Early in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 12, he says that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul heard all the criticism. I don't really like Paul. I like Peter better. Uh, I don't like Peter. I like Apollos better. I, I, I'm, I'm not any of those. I like Christ. None of them are like Christ. You know, the whole thing. So... Paul gives us this flesh and blood model of what a minister is to do and to look like, and then he writes these qualifications that allow you to understand those outward things that they have to submit to. And so 1 Timothy 3 is an important passage because Paul gives the qualifications. This is the level that the Word of God requires for those who lead in the church. And this is to deal with the real problems that Timothy is seeing and dealing with while he's there. So Paul takes on this issue. And when he writes in chapter 3 about what an elder ought to be or what a pastor ought to be or what an overseer ought to be, he is setting that against what the church at Ephesus has allowed to happen. So in, in at least some areas, if not all these areas, we can assume that some of the leadership at Ephesus are missing the mark. And as we're introducing this section, we're going to get to these verses, but as an example of some of the areas, just as a, a, an overview where leadership in the church in Ephesus has missed the mark, Paul says in verse 2, he says, an overseer must be blameless. Perhaps it's likely, if not uh, the case, that in Ephesus, they weren't blameless. Not able to be called out, that's what that means. He must be a one-woman man, that's very likely not the case in Ephesus. 
As we just read, he must be temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, given to hospitality, and goes on to talk about drinking and not greedy after money and so forth. So Paul has Timothy stay in Ephesus in order to charge some of of that that they teach no other doctrine. Obviously, by that statement, some had risen to the level of pastor or teacher, right? Because they're in the position of teaching doctrine, and Timothy has to correct it. Teaching fables, endless genealogies, things that minister questions, rather than the godly edification which is in faith. He talks about some in verse 6, turning aside to fruitless discussion. And then he talks about, uh, in chapter 1, verse 11, about some leaders who wanted to be teachers but had no idea what they were saying or the things which they were affirming. We're going to see some examples of that in just a minute. They didn't know how to use the law of God in order to present the gospel correctly, the bad news and the good news. And then in chapter 2 and verse 12, it appears that some of the women in the church had assumed a pastor-elder role of leadership, which Paul had to deal with. Chapter 4 is going to point out an outright lies, outright lies leaders tell, certainly during Paul's tenure, and on into the modern church. 1 Timothy 4, 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Those in leadership fall away from this faith and pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, and they're not even catching it with their conscience because they're liars, and then they've seared their own conscience as with a branding iron, so they say what they say, full face, fully believing what they say because there's no check going on. And then starting in in verse 3, he's going to identify some of the lies, like forbidding to eat certain foods in order to be holy, and forbidding to marry in order to be holy, and on and on. And 1 Timothy 4, 4, he says, for everything, Paul says to Timothy, listen, Everything created by God is good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thankfulness. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. And in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and on the sound doctrine which you have been following. Not listening to what other people say, not listening to what these false teachers are saying, but reading the word of God and then giving them that doctrine and helping them to understand it because they've lost their compass. Some of the elders aren't teaching the truth. Some of them who are, uh, are into ungodliness and evil. And then he says to them in 1 Timothy 5, don't lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So in other words, be careful who you put in what? Leadership. Why is that? Verse 24, the sins of some men are quite evident going along before them to judgment and for others the sins follow after. And so it's important to re- recognize. So as they're thinking about leadership, you know, that's why deacons have to be examined over a long period of time before they're put in. Why? Because they want to make sure none are following after. Sometimes it's obvious they're not qualified. Other times it's not obvious. And you're going to find out later. And, and I've said this before, but the whole, the whole, the whole pastoral search and, and put into positions just flawed in every possible way. Fortunately, Berean didn't fall into that trap. But this is how it normally goes. There's a group of of people who were put together for pulpit supply. None of them have served in pulpit ministry most of the time. None of them are elders who have led the church, who have a heart for the church, and are are empowered by the gifts of the Holy Spirit for that leadership. And then what do they do? They put out a search, and you take in a bunch of resumes. And so you got a bunch of resumes, and then you, you, you kind of reduce them all down to the ones you like the best, and then you bring that person in, and he preaches his best sermon because he wants you to be impressed. And then they vote and call him. What's the problem with that? There's no history there, is there? You don't know if the sins are coming along behind. You don't know what's going on with the guy. He just, he was able to come up there and give you the, uh, a good, uh, a great, they call it a sugar stick, the, the thing that he preaches the best. And then you say, okay, yeah, we want this guy. 
That's problematic, isn't it? It's, it's, I think it's um, symptomatic, though, of some of the problems that are in the church. Be careful who you put in leadership. Some sins come along afterwards. Verse 25, likewise also deeds that are good are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Time plus opportunity. You're going to figure out what he looks like, okay? The longer he's there, you're going to see what his life is like. If it's ungodly, it'll be obvious. It's not always evident what's going on, and, and I know we're getting far ahead of ourselves, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here and get bogged down, but I think as we introduce this extremely important section, it's important to see it in context. So we're getting these requirements, but we have to understand what the context is, perhaps what's going on. Why does he have to talk about this? Well, it's because in this church, uh, in the church of Ephesus and, and in modern churches, you have people who are sideways to these requirements, and so it has to be clear. Now, Probably as you read that, the feeling that you get when you run all those verses by in your mind and all these areas where they're having trouble is that there were people in leadership who were teaching lies, they're teaching false doctrine, false religious systems, and living ungodly lives. And beloved, that describes the modern church today too. Many of the most popular, most uh, sought after, most listened to ministers run afoul of much of this requirement and have for a very long time, and yet they have a very large following. So I think it's essential that Paul give Timothy the correct doctrine. He obviously thought it was important. We still need it today, which gives him the authority that he needs to correct this issue of leadership. And we can see from the wording that the leadership of this church had seriously departed from the standard of the Word of God. And when you think about that, and you think about the flippant way the modern church approaches these types of verses, and, and ordaining women into the pulpit and all those kinds of things, you can see that it's just no big deal still. In the grand scheme of modern Christianity, all that's antiquated, it's all out of date, we shouldn't be following it, the Lord's doing whatever He wants to do, and this person's gifted, and we're putting them in, and love is love, and all of that, see, and we just kind of throw the whole thing out, and we just kind of sit there in our own little world without any qualifications whatsoever, and then say, okay, well, you'll make a good leader. And so Paul's correcting all of that, and it's still just as relevant today as it ever has been. But that explains the serious problems with the outcome in the church today. So early on, the church had to set up the standard for conduct, and here in chapter 3, the standard for leadership. And part of the reason for that is the church leadership, like other kinds of leadership, can attract people with mixed and sometimes outrightly sinful motives to be in it. And of course, everyone knows, too, how to lead the church. Everybody knows how to play quarterback like they did for Sonny, right? Everybody knows how to, how to, how to uh, lead a team, right? And so there's plenty of opinions that are all, um, all valid in everyone's mind. And so you've got this whole thing going on here. And you can attract leaders for the wrong reasons and with the wrong qualifications. And so the question that gets asked the most, and again, this is much in context here, about pastoral leadership is, how do I know if I'm called to this position? I mean, that comes up a lot. I've answered that question a lot in, in my time in the ministry. I got it answered for me when I was a young man. The call to church leadership, the call, if you will, to the pastorate, the call to be an elder, the call to be an overseer in the church, and we'll look at all those biblical words and understand their meanings eventually, but whether or not you are the primary spokesman, such as a person like I am, or whether you serve and lead and teach and preach in, in the church in other ways, or an elder who has another function, or another role, or over a group, or, or young people, or missions, or whatever that might be, all these things are encompassed in this concept of church leadership. And the scripture describes this as a stewardship. 
and all who steward in any way are involved in these qualifications. Okay, so I think we can see that. And we'll see later in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, he says, for the overseer must be above reproach as what? God's steward. The overseer is God's steward. So he just makes a one-to-one comparison. Paul's describing his function in the Corinthian church along with Apollos and Cephas. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and mark what? Servants of the mysteries of Christ. And in this case, moreover, it's required steward that he be found trustworthy. So again, those who lead the church, those who teach and oversee the church are required to be stewards. And they're required here, it says, to be trustworthy. And that word steward is one that we are familiar with. We studied this passage. It's the word oikonomos. It's, it's the word for house manager. And, and so, again, the question will come up often from men is, how do I know if I'm called? How do I know if I'm supposed to be this house manager? How do I know, as we looked before, that I'm supposed to be this under rower? The person who just comes and delivers the word of God and makes sure he doesn't spill any of it, brings it to the table. This house manager who oversees the kinds of things that's supposed to go on in the church. How do I know if I'm supposed to be there? And this is an important concept in ministry. Because understanding it correctly will by default exclude the choice of the pastorate as a vocation on equal footing with other vocations. And and I think in this introductory time, it's important to take a prudent look at this issue and gain some understanding because that'll help us also to be able to exclude those who shouldn't be in. And so, and that'll take us as we look through this kind of precursor to this verse right up to verse one of chapter three. But simply laid out, let's ask a few questions and see if you know the answers to them. And then we'll look at the answers from the word of God. In the Old Testament, when God wanted someone for his own use, how did he do it? So when he wanted someone to speak for him, what did he do? He spoke directly to the individual through a prophet or angels. And just a few examples, and we could spend weeks here, and it would be a fascinating study. Just a few examples for the Old Testament. Uh, God called Abraham in Genesis 12 with an audible voice. I think you remember that. He uh, was walking up to a bush that seemed to be burning and didn't get consumed. And, and the Lord spoke to him from an, uh, in an audible voice. And then Moses argued with him and said, I'm not very good. I can't speak. And, you know, this is not going to be good. And the Lord uh, got annoyed with him a little bit and just said, listen, you're the one who's going to do it. He called Moses in Exodus 3 with that audible voice. Abraham, Genesis 12. He chose Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 with an audible voice. Samuel, Samuel sleeping. He comes running in uh, to Eli. What, what is it, Eli? Um, Go back to bed, I didn't call you. Remember that whole story? You probably learned it when you were a child. God chose Saul, we see in 1 Samuel 12. And even though the Lord chose him, Saul didn't continue in obedience, so God chose David to replace him in 1 Samuel 13. And and he told Samuel in an audible voice, and Samuel was to go and tell David, and then anoint him. And, And Samuel told Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 14, your kingdom will not endure, the Lord has sought out for himself. Mark it, a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. He wasn't obedient to what the Lord wanted, and so the Lord was looking for a man after his own heart. Guess what? The Lord's still looking for men after his own heart. That hasn't changed. The Lord called Isaiah, and he used an audible voice and a vision of God on his throne, and Isaiah had enough understanding of God's ways to know that seeing God on his throne, he was ruined. So the seraphim puts a coal from the altar on his lips. In Isaiah 6, verse 7, 
Uh, he says, he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. Guess what? God's still looking for willing hearts to do his will and represent him. He's looking for people who are men after his own heart. Just obviously. As he puts these requirements down, these are men who desire to walk with the Lord. The requirements are not unusual for those who want to lead. They're requirements that are part of the requirements for just being a believer, are they not? And so this is very, very important. He's looking for men who want to submit themselves to God's will and do his will. He's looking for people who are saying, here am I, send me. He's still looking for the same thing. And the Lord called Jeremiah with an audible voice in Jeremiah 1, 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you as a prophet for the nations. Talk about sovereignty. Before he was even born, before he was in the womb, the Lord picked him out. And so he comes to Jeremiah and he takes this opportunity to tell him, even though he's already determined it long before. And then God tests Jeremiah a little bit, make sure he can understand the message. What did you see, Jeremiah? I saw this or I saw that. You remember that? And then the Lord, and so he intervenes in Jeremiah's life and says, listen, I know what you had plans for. This is what I have planned for you. So come and do it. And the Lord told Elijah, Elijah to go in and anoint Elisha to be a prophet that would take Elijah's place in 1 Kings chapter 19. And we could go on and on about this. And this is just a fascinating study, but I think you can see it. And no doubt you've read many of those passages yourself and understand them very clearly. How did the men know they were called in the Old Testament? God spoke out of heaven and made it clear or brought the prophet or an angel and made it clear. He delivered the message and you understood. Okay, now fast forward. In the New Testament, in the first century, Jesus is on the earth, and God wants to call someone. How did they know? What's the answer? Jesus personally called them. And the disciples who would later be the apostles of the church, and you, you've seen all of this and very familiar to you, but Mark chapter 1, verse 16, uh, Jesus is going along by the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and Andrew and, brothers, and the brother of Simon casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, I'll make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now think about that, okay? Now think if we were still with Jesus on the earth and you're doing your thing, whatever it is that you do, okay, whatever your profession is, you're, you're teaching a class or you're, you're uh, working on a house or you're, you're in an office or whatever, and Jesus just walks by and he says, I want you to come after me and I want you to, I, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. What would you do? You would lay down your stuff and you'd walk out that door and you'd never look back. And that's precisely what they did. Going on a little further, it says, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. And I always think about his, the father sitting in the boat with the sons and they, you know, Jesus walks by and says, come on. And they just get up and walk out. He's like, what's going on here? You know, I mean, we got the job to do. And what did they do? They got up and left. Jesus called them. And then we see, and this is one of my favorites in Mark chapter two, verse 14. He passed by, he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. So he's hated by all the Jews. He's hated by all the Romans. He's got a big line of people paying taxes and he just points at him. Here's a guy nobody likes and says, come and follow me. And what's he do? He gets up, closes the booth and walks out. And everybody who's paying their taxes is thinking, this is my lucky day. Right? Because he's, uh, he's, he's uh, uh, unfaithful in tax collecting. No doubt stole money like every tax collector did. Jesus calls him and says, come. You can't, can't count about uh, leadership on, on 
on obvious, perhaps, qualifications from a worldly perspective, can you? None of those guys were anything special, were they? Jesus called them, said, come. And Jesus himself directly called Paul, and we've looked at that extensively. And he chose him, and just like all these other guys, interfered in his life and gave him his life's purpose, and we looked at that many times, and Paul especially, very recently. So, got both of those, so now we're in the church age. How do we know now that we're in the church age? If it's always been a call, is it any different now? Well, we know God's not speaking out of heaven to call once he wants, because Hebrews 1 tells us that he doesn't do that anymore. He's spoken through Jesus, and we know through Jesus we have his word. Okay, so he's not speaking out of heaven and calling ones he wants. So if you were breathing a little uh, uneasy, you were unsure what I was going to say, that God's going to call you out of heaven, I'm not going to say that. Okay? And uh, we know where Jesus is right now, do we not? At the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. So he's obviously not walking around on earth, coming up to you and saying, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So it's not that. So it's always been a call though. So how does, how's it done now? How would we know that this is what God would have me do? And that brings us to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, where we get the answer to that question. So let's read it. Look back there in your copy of God's Word. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And this spot is really the only place we have a very clear statement about how this all works. Statements are implied in other places, but there's a clear understanding here. We'll look at those other ones later. But this will just seem so obvious to us. God did it audibly in the Old Testament. Jesus did it in the first century establishment of the church. And the Holy Spirit does it now. And Paul says, just in case somebody's unclear, this is a trustworthy statement. This you can be sure of. What can we be sure of as we think about whether or not we've been called into the church age ministry? And verse 1 explains how that comes about. And it's connected to two words for desire. Now, the King James translates it this way, if a man desire the office of bishop, he desireth the good work. And that's a little confusing, because with the same word twice, even though the Greek words are different. The NIV and NASB got it right by expressing a closer English meaning. The first one, and we'll get back to it's a trustworthy statement again in a minute, and you'll see why. But Paul's first comment that helps us understand how men can know if they're called into the ministry, he says this, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. For first thing we notice is what? That the office is held by a man. Now, I'm not going to talk about this at length because we already did. But I just want to point it out that there are no other examples in the New Testament of a woman holding that position. No elders, no bishops, no overseers, nothing. No planting churches, no writing the scriptures, okay? So this passage, again, just affirms to us if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's an office held by a man. And then that first word, aspires, oregomi, the Greek verb, present, middle, indicative. Oregomi is to reach out after, to stretch oneself out in order to touch or grasp something. Now, it's used in the positive and the negative. The negative in the, old, in the New Testament, which I think is helpful for us, it's the word we see in 1 Timothy 6, the reaching out after money. And that's a bad thing in that section. When you reach out, pursue money, you pierce yourself through with many griefs. Many have done that, and Paul says, don't do it. And we'll get to that as we get to chapter 6. So it's this sense of desire, though, that, that helps us understand what we're talking about, an intense desire. 
A middle voice indicates its desire is reaching out after an object himself. A very strong personal desire to reach for that office. And just to clarify, it doesn't say anything about the inside. It just says what you're doing on the outside. The idea of going after something. If somebody goes after the position of overseer, that's the idea. Now, just to make this in your own court, think about you who played uh, any kind of uh, uh, sports, perhaps, or you, you aspired after uh, an academic degree or something. You understood what it took to get there. You may not have been the best athlete uh, in a field of athletes with the most natural gifting, but you saw what it took. You were willing to put the time in. You conformed yourself to it and beat your body up, and you made the team. And it's very similar with in academics. You, you understand what has to happen. You see the requirements, and you desire it very much. And so you bring yourself into submission of the requirements for that position. That's the idea, okay? You know what it's going to take. You're willing to pay the price for it. That's this word, oregami. It works its way out on the outside. If somebody goes after the position of overseer, it's on the outside, desiring, a desiring to submit to the qualifications, bringing the life into compliance. And, and he'll see what it takes, and he begins to reach for it. If he follows that track, if he wants it, uh, no one is convincing him of it. The guidance counselor isn't saying, well, your dad's a pastor, so that's a good option for you. Uh, and you, many of you know this, my boys certainly know this, that I've never told any of them, you should think about being in the pastorate. I wouldn't tell that to my worst enemy. Pastorate is very difficult, full of many troubles and very little high points. And you're looking at the long view, and you're just in line with all the other ministers who've done the job over time. You're looking at, we serve the God who's the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe, and you work hard that way. You submit yourself as a house manager, as an under rower, and you just do the job day after day, knowing the church is only going to grow and become what they need to be as, as you closely follow what the Word of God says and preach it clearly. And the Holy Spirit goes into work in their life and begins to conform their conscience and conform their, uh, their, uh, uh, their actions to obedience. And so it's not somebody convincing you to do it. It's not the guidance counselor saying you should do it. It's an idea that comes into the mind, mark this, unbidden. And many men will say, and, and me included, it was not on my radar. I wasn't thinking that that's what I should be doing. Not that I wasn't serving in the church. Many men who are called into ministry are already faithfully serving. In fact, that probably will be the rule. You'll already be involved. Why? Because everybody's supposed to be involved, right? Everyone's supposed to find a place to serve and use your spiritual gifts to serve. And I was very involved in my church, but being in vocational ministry was not on my radar. And men like me before the pastorate had, had no knowledge of what it would look like with me there. I wasn't thinking my future that way. But now he has that longing, and he wants to reach out for it. And Paul says that first longing is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And the second part of the verse helps clarify this intent. So it says, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And that second desire, epithemeo, it's a compound verb. Epi is on or on the side of, and thumos is the word for fierceness or passion. So what's that mean? Well, a passionate compulsion. On the outside, a desire to conform to what it's going to take, but on the inside, it eclipses everything else. Whatever it was that you were doing is overshadowed by this one consuming desire. 
So it isn't the best out of you know, three or five or any other number. You're not kind of shuffling a bunch of vocations around and then kind of landing on that one. It's not a close race between a physician and a lawyer and an engineer and a butcher or baker, candlestick maker, whatever. Okay? It's not this all switching around. Well, I was going to be a doctor, but maybe I'll be a pastor. I was going to be a physician. Maybe I was going to be a lawyer. Maybe I was going to be in real estate. I, it, but now I'll be a pastor. It's not switching around. When this second desire comes to bear, it eclipses everything else. And all those desires get narrowed down to one choice. You thought you were supposed to do that, but now all of that makes no sense to you whatsoever. In fact, you don't want to do any of that now. You want to do the one thing. And Paul says, what? This is a trustworthy statement and worthy of all acceptance. The Holy Spirit is at work in the heart of man, of man the Lord has desired to bring into ministry. First word is something you do outwardly. The second word is something that you feel inwardly. And two of those things that come together in this verse, they give us this embodiment of the full understanding of that desire. What you have here then is the Holy Spirit given desires to lead in the church and pursue it on the outside because he's driven by the inside. He's compelled, if you will. And Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement. It's a question of what you're compelled to do. So this is always the answer that I give young men who come and say, I don't know why, but I feel like I should be doing this. This is what the Lord, I think, is drawing me to. I don't understand this. It's precisely the same, the same feeling I had in my early 20s, early to mid-20s. This, this doesn't make any sense to me. My degree, my experience, everything has taken me this way. This is where I'm planning on going. But now it's like that doesn't seem to, I don't want to do that anymore. And that's kind of scary because this is what I know, and I don't know anything about this. Unfortunately, my own pastor at that time took me to these passages and confirmed uh, with his own experience and those who were around him, and then, of course, took me back through a number of the things that I just took you through. So what are you compelled to do? And it appears from chapter 3, verse 1, that the call of God today comes through the Spirit in the desires of the heart. Two strong desires. And this is the place where we find it so clear we can find it other places implied, and we'll look at those, but here it just seems very clear. And two things that are the work of the Holy Spirit, and these two desires have one focus. Mark it, look back at your copy of God's Word, to oversee the church. That is in the middle part of the verse. If any man aspires to the office, it says, of overseer. And so that overseer is the Greek noun, episcope, episcope is the word for visiting in order to examine. It's, it's where we get our word bishop or elder. It's translated indiscriminately there. Um, the words are used interchangeably to refer to one office. There's a number of places that you can see that. I'll give you some examples to make sure you know that we're on the right track. We looked at this passage not too long ago as we were talking about what Paul had to warn the church about. And the same thing that actually occurred in Ephesus. All of his worry and concern for Ephesus actually came to, came to be. But he, he, from Miletus, he sent to, the, to Ephesus and called to him the elders. So there's already elders at work in the church in Ephesus. I think we understand that. And then he, when they had come to him, he said to them, and then we, we went all over that, everything that's going to happen, uh, guys are going to come in from the outside, guys are going to come up from the inside, they're going to leave the sheep astray, ravenous wolves, he calls them. And then he says, verse 28, be on your guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you, here it is, overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So two different words for the overseer's position that describes some of the, the function, and we'll look at that later, some of the function of those who lead the church. And again, in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and look what we see here, a little bit different than what we see uh, for Timothy. 
In Titus 1.5, uh, Titus is going to the church in Crete, a church not established yet very well. And so he says to him, for this reason, I left you in Crete. So he's uh, habitually leaving these young guys in places where there's trouble and saying, okay, straighten it out. I'll write you a letter and I can give you some instructions. So he leaves Timothy in Ephesus and says, stay there. And then he writes him a letter. Here's what you need to do. Does the same thing to Titus. I'm leaving you in Crete and that you'll set in order what remains. So there's some disorder in the church and he's going to set that in order. And then what does it say? Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So T Titus has to appoint elders to lead the church, whereas Timothy doesn't because there's already elders at functioning there. And so, and right after that, he gives almost the same qualifications to Titus as he gives to Timothy. And then watch what he says, for the overseer must be blameless. So if there is someone in place there, he's not supposed to be, and T Titus is going to have to appoint some other ones. And we'll get into that as we get to Titus. But I think you can see that same kind of language. Now, the two desires to do this constitute God's calling. And Paul says the office of overseer is, a, and this is so cool, a fine work. A fine work he desires to do. And that is uh, literally a praiseworthy labor. And just as a footnote, you know, as we begin to close for today, it's, it's important to remember that uh, just because uh, the person begins to desire on the outside this office of elder and the Holy Spirit is moving him, he may find he's disqualified at first. Right? Or he may have had this desire on the outside to become an elder and be an overseer and then wrecked his life so he can't possibly do it so there's a lot of things that can be in play here just like we saw Saul who was appointed by God physically a voice from heaven you this is the one I want to lead and then became disqualified that still happens and obviously in Ephesus that has happened because Paul's having to say to Timothy what he has to say about those qualifications for an elder so now that we've laid this groundwork in this section, we can get to our first three principles for those who lead the church. And I'm going to give them to you rapid fire because we've already seen them in context in the verse as we laid the foundation. And so I'm going to pick up here next week, Lord willing. But number one, the office of overseer, elder, bishop is held by a man. We saw that very clearly. No New Testament examples of anything else. And that harmonizes well with the commands we saw from chapter 2, verses 8 and 11, and from 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. There's no problem there, see? And so some of the guys in the church in Ephesus that said they proudly and proclaim things they don't understand. You remember that? And I think that the way that works out on a regular basis, and we see this, I think we can see this anecdotally in, in the modern church, is guys who stand up here and then proudly proclaim that they're going, to, they're going to bring a woman in and she's going to be an elder and the, and, the, and the Lord is doing this work in her life and she's gifted. No doubt she is gifted and no doubt she can teach, but she's not supposed to do it in front of the church and the church uh, official worship service. But they're proudly proclaiming that, but they don't understand anything about that, right? Because they can say that there, but as soon as you take that translation and you move it anywhere in the New Testament, you're crossways with the, with the other translation. A, a normal understanding of what the Word of God says will cause a problem. And, and it falls on our ears all the time for guys who are false teachers. They say these kinds of things. And the Holy Spirit's going to do such and such. And I have a word of the Lord from, you, from me to you. The problem is you can say that and proudly proclaim it, but you have no understanding of what actually is supposed to be occurring and what isn't supposed to be occurring. So this is the issue. So we don't want to be crossways with any, any other passages of Scripture. Office of overseer elder is held by a man, not because men are better spiritually, not because there's some inequality with the qualifications. It's a complementarian role. The Lord has jobs for women, He has jobs for men, and He has given those jobs out and helps us understand that. 
Number two, there's a definitive call in the background of the qualified man. This isn't the guidance counselor telling you you'd probably make a good pastor. This is when you question them, they're like, you know, I was in commercial real estate, but um, man, I, I don't understand this, but I don't want to do that anymore, and I think the Lord wants me to lead his church. And I was, that wasn't on my radar, but now I'm thinking that it is. I don't know what to do now. That's going to be the, that's going to be the comments you're going to hear. Now, you're going to see many men in the pulpit, even today, who have no such call and can't tell you that they thought it was something that they should start doing instead of something else. And it also harmonizes very well. The man who puts his hand to the plow, what does he not do? He doesn't look back over his shoulder, right? It's pretty hard to plow when you're looking back over your shoulder. Your rows are not going to be straight, right? When you begin that process, all that stuff is behind you now. But it's perfectly fine for you if you've been called to the ministry. Why? Because you don't want to do any of that stuff now. What you want to do is this, and you don't even know why. So that's always going to be in the background of the qualified man. A compelling drive on the outside to submit to those requirements and a compelling drive on the inside that eclipses everything else. Number three, the office includes the labor of oversight. That understanding is the understanding of investigation, of inspection, of direction. Uh, it's the word used of the Lord in the New Testament as he searches out the ways and deeds and character of men. First Peter chapter 2, verse 25, very clearly says that, uh, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd. And then our word, uh, uh, New American Standard translates it this way, uh, guardian of your souls. That's the word overseer. So this this idea of guarding the church, an idea of investigating, inspecting, directing, encouraging, you know, all of those kinds of things are all part of this idea of overseeing the church. And so next time as we get into this, we're going to see that Paul um, makes it clear that the men who minister in the church as leaders must correctly answer, among other things, the questions of character and lifestyle and testimony and integrity. So there's this call that goes on, the Holy Spirit does it, this dual desire, two different words in the New Testament to help us understand how he gets to that point. And then there's these qualifications and they all have to do with character, lifestyle, testimony, integrity. Nothing to do with natural skill, nothing to do with any ability you might bring to the table, nothing that might identify you as the guy who's going to be this great preacher and orator. In fact, if we see the New Testament at all and we see any in the Old Testament, we realize it wasn't the, they weren't the likely candidates. Just very ordinary people. In fact, people you probably wouldn't pick. Not many wise, not many noble, right? God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I just realized that, you know, over the course of my time in the ministry, that in some respects, I fall into that. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I'm not here to, to make you feel good. I'm not concerned about whether you like me or not. The fear of man brings a snare. My, my desire is that you walk in holiness, and I can't force you to do that, but I can give you the Word of God and make you then accountable to the Holy Spirit and to the Lord Himself for what you understand you're supposed to do. That's my whole job. It wraps the whole thing up. I'm a shepherd. I'm a guardian. I have to watch out for wolves. I have to do those kinds of things. But the primary job that I do... It's just foolishly preaching the cross so people can laugh and scorn and whatever and walk out and say that was so stupid and he's not a teacher and man, I didn't learn anything. These are all words I've actually heard in my life over 30 years. I didn't learn anything. I don't learn anything from your preaching. I mean, it's a complete waste of time. That kind of stuff, all right? And it's hard to hear that. I'll just tell you. It's hard to hear those words and not take it personally. It's hard to hear those words and go home and feel good about yourself. And yet I just understand it's a long view. You just do what every other minister who's faithful has done and just fall into that group and just look forward to a time when the Lord can say, you know, 
Well done, if that's what he says. And so and I think important issues here that, that make it clear that this is character, lifestyle, testimony, integrity. And, and it's not surprising, is it? Because we just looked in chapter 2, even if men are praying in the church, what's their requirements? If they're, supposed, if they're allowed to pray in the church, they have to be lifting up holy hands. What's that mean? Their lifestyle in general, as you observe their lifestyle, is a holy lifestyle. Not one complicated by the world, not one that loves the world, whatever. And that their inside has to be not wrath or dissension. They can't be troublemakers, not dissentious people, not arguers all the time. Those people can't, those guys can't preach in the church. See, so it shouldn't surprise us when we get to those who lead the church, there's an even longer list of requirements. And what's really comforting, I think, as we think about all this, as we tie this all together, this concern for character and testimony and lifestyles we've seen really dominates 1 Timothy. And it peaks right here in the third chapter. Paul's stated purpose in writing, as he explained right there at the last verse of this chapter, is that you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is the standard by which you're allowed to do what you do. And that sits very badly on modern church most of the time. People don't like to hear that. They don't want to say, this is the standard, we have to do it this way. They want to do whatever they want. They want very little accountability, too. But that's not what the, how the Lord has set up the church. And it's not how He set up those who are supposed to lead it. And then, if you think about this, 1 Timothy really takes in church conduct and order, of course. But there's a deeper purpose, and we looked at it, didn't we? Namely, what is it? World evangelization. What was the purpose of God we saw in chapter 2? That God doesn't desire any men to perish, but all to come to the knowledge of salvation. That's God's desire. So then he tells the church to begin to pray for all men everywhere, and for leaders and all who are in authority, and for the church's holiness and faithfulness before the world, right? Why? All because of testimony. And so understand that even in all of that, see, we're bringing up this leadership requirement. It just comes under that whole thing. It's all about the church ministry of evangelization. And you get off track if you put the wrong people in leadership. You're not focused on what you're supposed to be focusing on. You're not equipping the church to be the kind of salt and light they're supposed to be. And so what do we have, as we talked about with the men last, uh, yesterday morning at the men's breakfast, you have a whole bunch of salt that's good for nothing. It's no longer preservative. People come out of a church, they have this idea that I don't want to be part of Christianity that's condemning. I don't want to be part of a Christianity that says some people can't do this and that this lifestyle isn't any good. And I don't want to be part of a church like that. So they go join a church that isn't like that. But where is the, where's the preservative now? There's no preservative now, see? You're not hearing any good message. You're not understanding exactly what's supposed to be happening. So what did Jesus say? The salt becomes good for nothing except to throw out on the path and use to mark the path. So this is the issue. And it all comes under the church's main purpose. And so when we see all this, just realize it doesn't take on a life of its own. It's all about this whole main purpose of the church. Who leads, who prays, what the women do, what the men do, all of what, how you pray in the church, all that is all about evangelization. It's all about the church's purpose. We do it individually, we do it corporately, and it gets all under that whole umbrella, okay? So, that saving desire, of course, is just in play here as we get to verses 1 through 7, requirements for leaders. And all of that will put the church in a position where it can be effective and useful to the Lord. That's the issue. 
So as we go through this, just realize this just brings the church correctly in alignment. And when you see that it's not in play, we see a church that plays that down. When they've violated those main principles, you realize the church has got off base. It's not directed where it's supposed to go. It's not being taught like it should do for a love from a pure heart and a sincere faith and a good conscience, right? You've missed all of that. And now it's heading in a different direction. And it may still seem like a church, and they may have fine worship and the lights and everything, and just feel like, wow, I'm just really meeting with the Lord. And then they get up and they teach, and they're not teaching the right thing. And you think that you're part of this great movement, but you're really not growing. You've lost your saltiness. You're preservative, the reason why you were left here. So all very, very important as we think about all this. All right? We're out of time, so let's pray. You bow with me. Father, we thank you today for this time together. So grateful to be together with like-minded believers who love you. Who, who desire to do your will and be a part of your kingdom. It's, your holiness is beyond our comprehension. Uh, we can't understand even uh, just a fragment of the garment of what it means to be perfectly holy and perfectly just. And Father, we thank you that in the midst of that, you, uh, from ages past, from before time, eternity past, sent your Son to walk here with us, to help us understand you, and to bridge the gap between us and you, and for that we're so grateful. Father, we thank you that we have an opportunity now to pray for all men everywhere, for all who are in authority, for leaders. Father, we think about those far from us. We think about perhaps uh, the Ukraine war and, and, and Putin and all those who are involved in a wickedness, and, and we ask for peace. We ask for salvation. We don't wish for any of them to perish. We don't want our own wicked leaders and our own nation to perish because you don't want them to perish. What a horrible thought it is to punish, be punished forever in eternity in hell. Sometimes we get caught up in, well, they'll get what they deserve. Yeah, well, we didn't. So, Father, I pray that you'll conform our thoughts to your thoughts, that we'll have a heart that has compassion for the world, which will work its way out in our own obedience, and that you'll bring wise counselors to those who are leaders in foreign countries and far away in Israel and, and uh, the Sudan and places where missionaries are in danger. It should bring peace there. We think about India and we think about some of the difficulty in our own missionaries' lives and those who they love and worship and, and minister with and that you'll bring peace with leaders who are causing so much uh, distraught and, and, and fear and the lack of peace and tranquility and believers running for their lives and in fear of meeting. Father, I pray you bring peace there. I pray you I bring uh, calm that the leaders will come to faith, that the good testimony of the believers will work its way out in, in a place where the church can be effective and work effectively. Thank you for the conversions going on there and everything that's got stirred up. But I pray, Father, that you'll bring peace so that your church can continue to grow. These are the kinds of things, Father, we want to remember as we work through our week that we want to pray for these kinds of things and lead others to do it too. This is your will. You've made it clear. It's not unclear for us how we're supposed to pray and what we're supposed to be concerned about. It's just hard to do it because we're so used to praying so close to us. And it's not that you're not concerned about our lives and about our loved ones and those close to us and those we know. And it's just that you want us to have a broader worldview, one that mimics your own. So, Father, we thank you for that, and we thank you for this time we can spend talking about leadership as we work our way towards a Christmas time. We're very grateful that uh, we had this example in the Apostle Paul, follow him as he follows Christ. Thank you for even the hard things that he, that he showed us would be part of the leadership. And, Father, we can embrace them because he willingly did. In fact, said, count it all joy when you come into difficult times. 
And so, Father, we, we give you praise for that. We thank you for this introduction to this section as we move on next week in deeper. Lord, we pray that you will give us your understanding and that uh, we'll be able then to translate that into what the church is supposed to do, how the mission is supposed to look, and that we'll be edified and encouraged in those things. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake. Amen.